Welcome back to another Gems of History podcast. I am your co-host, Evan Roosh. And with me, as always, we have the long-haired, don't-care himself, Jacob Shop. You know, we, we had a talk outside of the show where we decided that... Don't we, let them know that we talk outside the show. <laughs> we, need, we need to be more mean to each other for content reasons. And <laughs> so, so screw <laughs> but, you, Evan. <laughs> Yeah, I do remember that, and now I'm remembering, but I'm, like, fragile as a little butterfly, so... <laughs> I know. and I just, like, don't want to just roast my friend for, like, an hour every time we do this, so... Yeah, so if you want... There you if you were looking for crude humor and personal jabs, that this is the wrong show. <laughs> we keep it light and complimentary on this show. Thank you very much. But we're going to my my heritage lands today. Yes, that's right. I also see you're wearing a kilt. I, I had to bust yeah. it. I just had to bust it out, dust it off. You know, we're slowly creating this like persona for listeners because I think one time we said that you don't have hair, yep. like two weeks ago, and now always wears a kilt. It's in the box that you know in the scene in the movie where there's a box in the corner, but there's like. Just this perfect spot of light shining down on it. Yep. That's where my kilt is. <laughs> it's just Bo- that one. The box in the attic. <laughs> That's beautiful. But today, for all of you guys, we have another another historical figure who's just his story and his life, uh, while extremely interesting, was actually made into a major motion picture uh, or just some sort of media. But in this case, one of Probably one of the most well-known oh, movies yeah. of all time. It's literally on, I mean, if you would Google top 10 movies of all time, it'd probably be on there. Not, not super historically accurate, no. but, <laughs> but it's a good movie. But uh, this is almost like a carryover from when we did Uhtred because this right. is kind of not the same time period. It's about 300 years separate the two, mm-hmm. but it's also the same time where England is still fighting to unite all of Great Britain into a single entity. So it kind of carries on that storyline a little bit. And now we're just going to talk about a figure from a different part of what is now the UK, and that is Scotland. So, yeah, if you thought 300 years after the Uhtred the Bold uh, run, and also go back and listen to that episode. If you thought that they had their issues resolved in England and they would just stop fighting each other on the island, lo and behold, still doing it. And I know I got some messages saying that you guys didn't like how short the Uhtred episode was. So today we're just going to read the entire script of Braveheart for you guys. And that's how we're going to get into the story of a man known as William Wallace. Yes, I mean, why redo the story when it's already been yeah, it's taught already and won Academy Awards? And I mean, there's we can find the screenplay notes online, so I mean, we mm-hmm. might as well just read it. Among the farmers of that shire was Malcolm Wallace, a commoner with his own lands and two sons, John and William. I told you to stay. I finished my chores. Where are we going? Back Andrews. He was supposed to fess up when the gathering was over. They ride on over the lush hills. All right, I don't... (laughs) There's just too much interjecting stuff to do this whole thing. We also have completely different scripts. (laughs) I know. (laughs) 
<laughs> Mine definitely had a different line than yours did. So, yeah. well, so did yours. that's what you get. <laughs> yep, you get 30 seconds of us reading a screenplay. But today, we're not actually reading the Braveheart script. We are talking about William Wallace, though. Yes, absolutely fascinating man in his own right. Uh, again, you've probably all seen the Braveheart movie. But this man was also just truly incredible in what he did, considering uh, the rebellion that he started uh, against one of the biggest empires, well, not biggest land-wise, but one of the strongest empires in terms of organization and just army size. And he did it strictly by charisma. He didn't even have (laughs) a very strong name to attach to anything that he did. He just kind of was a strong leader naturally, and he used that to his advantage. His charisma just... In in D&D terms, he was a very good bard because he had strong charisma. (laughs) Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. For those of you that have seen Braveheart, then you'll wonder if the story is true. And as we said, a lot of the details in that movie are not historically accurate, but there is basis for where the story came from. William Wallace was a real person. He did fight large battles against the English and led charges, but he definitely, Mel Gibson definitely took a lot of creative liberties when creating the movie to make a better story. He was like, I'm going to hit every single Scottish stereotype and put them all into one character. Yes, definitely. So for one example, William Wallace wasn't the man known as Braveheart. That was a different man known as Robert the Bruce. But regardless, today we're going to kind of shed some light on the real life story of William Wallace because he was a very notable hero in Scottish history. So, Yeah, and Jacob's going to take you through the early life and just where Scotland and England was at the time. And then I'll be handling the majority of just the rebellion and the wild run that this man actually has. Uh, truly wild and throughout the English countryside. Yeah, so from most accounts, William Wallace was born in either 1270 or 1272. They're not sure exactly because the records are pretty scarce, but he was believed to have been born in an area just outside of modern-day Glasgow in a place known as Eldersley. And the area that he was likely born in was a wooden fortification, like a small hamlet, they call it, which was run by his family. And although they were Scottish, they would consider themselves Scottish, they, it was believed they probably still spoke French just because... That's what his family would have spoken, and they Mm -hmm. just kept that going. And it was cool because one of the... I watched a documentary on YouTube, I believe it was from Timeline, World Histories, and they actually walk through the area where they found the like remnants of what was formerly his hamlet, and the the historian who's like a William Wallace biographer or whatever... Again, always wearing a kilt. In Scotland, he basically gave him enough information so they redrew what it would have looked like and stuff. So it's it's super cool. But he was born, William Wallace was born into what would today be considered kind of an upper middle class family. But at the time, his family would have been considered a minor nobility or lower aristocracy position. But that didn't leave William in a position to inherit land. And that kind of put him in a pinch because... At the time, it was very common for aristocracy who weren't set to inherit land to become taught like a priest. They were taught by monks. And that is the one record we do have from William Wallace's childhood did say that he was raised by monks. However, more modern findings, we, they found a family crest 
And it kind of suggests otherwise because the seal, it has a picture of a bow, for like a bow and arrow on the, on the crest. And that suggests that William was more of kind of a hunter, more of like an outdoors person, not mm-hmm. really a, a religious guy. So that didn't really lend towards the story of him going on the track to be a priest. Yeah, it was not very religious. Very much like a man's man, if yeah. you will. You know, hunting, fishing, loving every day. Am I right? Yeehaw. <laughs> Country and stuff. Because at this point, he kind of knew that he was going to have to set out on his own and do his own thing if he wanted to make a name for himself, knowing that he wasn't inheriting any land. Mm-hmm. So this is where he kind of went out and did his own, made his own path and kind of tried to see where he could land and what different turns in life he could take advantage of. Yeah, a man of great ambition. He saw that he really had no chance to inherit land and was like, let's do something about that. Yeah, so that's where we're going to stop for him for now because there's a lot of background information in the interim between when he shows back up. Mm -hmm. And so around the same time when William was doing his own thing, when he was around probably the age of 20 or so, the situation in England and Scotland came to a head. Because King Edward I of England, who was known as Longshanks, because he was tall, that is the only reason. (laughs) And it was said he was around 6'2", which I guess at the time when the average height's probably like 5'5". That's pretty tall. (laughs) Yeah, like skinny britches was already taken. So they had to (laughs) to just Longshanks. Yeah. But he was a very war-heavy leader for England and... uh, He was riding high on the heels of beating down English rebels who plotted against his father. So he was very much on a hot streak. And shortly after that, in 1287, he made a pretty controversial decision to expel all of the Jews from his lands and confiscate their property to increase his war funds. Yeah. Tell me if you've heard this one before. Yeah, tell me if you've heard a world government do this. That was just, that's not something that I saw in my notes, but when you shared that with me i was like oh my god like, yeah it it's again not, in the english were german they came from germanic tribes it's not a new thing that the jews have been persecuted at all so and like they were just wealthy so they the king was like well now all your stuff is my stuff let's go let's go to war yeah exactly so he needed money and they had money so yeah. there you go and while he was kind of using this new found funding to set his sights on taking over Scotland because he had recently taken over Wales, a big stroke of fate kind of helped him out. In 1286, a year before he expelled all the Jews, King Alexander III of Scotland died. And this was kind of a big deal because the story goes as follows, and there's varying different stories to go with this there's obviously expanded universes of his death for whatever reason just because of local folklore but here is the story that i kind of landed on alexander the third was really in a bit of a pinch before he died he was a very good ruler by all accounts but by 1284 he had no children left to succeed him if he were to die His wife, Margaret, had died, followed shortly after by their son, David, at the age of eight, and he was now left with his eldest daughter, Margaret, and his youngest son, Alexander. So, both namesakes of their parents. Yep. 
1281, the 20 year old Margaret went off, married a 13 year old from Norway named Eric Magnuson, which is the most Norwegian name in the history of the world. You know that Eric is spelled with a K. Oh, yeah, 100%. And so he was set to take over the throne of Norway, and she became Queen of Norway. So, tender age of not even double digits. She's got it going on. No, she was 20. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. Margaret was 20 at the time, although. Eric was 13, so right, <laughs> dude, right, right. dude's just loving life right now. What a Just had his first like teenage birthday party, was probably sick, ton of Mountain Dew, and then just became king. And you get married to this hot redhead from Scotland, I'm assuming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she and Eric had given birth to another daughter, which was also named Margaret, so a line of three Margarets in a row. And at this point, Alexander III had lost his other son, Alexander, at the age of 20. And with no brothers or uncles to succeed him, he looked back to Margaret in Norway. And at this point, he asked all of the councils uh, from Scotland, just basically said, I don't have an heir at this point. Can we recognize my daughter's daughter, Margaret, as the ruler if I were to pass? And they're like, yeah, that's fine. Wink. (laughs) So he did, in fact, get the right to name Margaret his successor. And at the same time, he was looking to get married again, just in case he could have another child before he would die. And then that way this would settle all the problems and they wouldn't have to resort to that. He did get married again. She did get pregnant. And on the way to visit his new wife, he got caught in a storm and his escort lost track of him. And the different accounts of this, some of them say he was partying before and then went out, and basically it's a drunk driving folktale to not get on your horse and and buggy. (laughs) (laughs) And your wagon. And after his escort lost track of him, he went back, and the next day they found Alexander III on the beach with a broken neck. I can't imagine being that escort. Literally one job. Yeah. Watch the ruler of the country, and he's just laying on the beach for the broken neck. Okay, listen. He doesn't have... Listen. He doesn't have an heir. You have to keep track of this man. Okay. Whatever you do, don't <laughs> let him drive drunk. <laughs> and what did or he do? gallop drunk. Gallop drunk, yeah. <laughs> Gunk, if you will. So, no more, no more king, uh, but his wife is pregnant. However, while she was being protected by guards until she gave birth, the child died either of miscarriage or some other ailment but it's not 100 percent sure but either way no more heir to the throne and now everyone's like okay what about that margaret girl and then they said which one there's three (laughs) (laughs) well one of them died like 10 years ago the other one's queen of norway (laughs) but her ghost the one that died her ghost is still haunting the halls yes so little margaret was a strong three years old at the time so not not quite officially old enough to take the role of running a country. And this left a big power struggle for control of Scotland. And this is where Edward I was very willing to help fill in. So initially, there was a plan they came up with to have young three-year-old Margaret marry Prince Edward, the son of Edward I. And he was about five at the time. So little kids getting married, I guess. Before they even realize what anything is. Oh, literally. They just stopped pooping themselves and now they have (laughs) wedding rings. 
So there was very rushed agreements set up, and King Edward I was forced to say that Scotland would be able to remain free once the marriage was official. So this is kind of a big deal because his sole intent here is to take control of Scotland. But in these negotiations, he didn't have time to really suss everything out and was forced to say, you guys can keep your independence once this marriage is like, official. However, that marriage was never meant to be. On her way to Scotland, seven-year-old Margaret now, maid of Norway, as she would come to be known, and would be Queen of Scotland, died. It was believed she suffered from a severe bout of seasickness and just could not recover, and that's how she died. That may be the first documented case of that severe of seasickness. That's just so convenient. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it is a long boat ride from Norway to the UK, so... That is fair. It is very long. But it's like seasickness. <laughs> yeah. And there's a funny side story that I read about where like 17 years later, this other chick shows up and it's like, hey, guys, it's me. It's me, Margaret. Oh, I'm still it. alive. <laughs> and they're like, you look like you're 40. Margaret would be like 18 right now. It's been a tough couple years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they eventually sussed out that she was not the actual Margaret and they burned her at the stake. So wow, rough do, times for everyone. Do not play with the royal family, I guess. Yeah. So this is kind of a big deal that seven-year-old Margaret did not make it because if she had married Prince Edward, it may have really fast-tracked the unification of Great Britain and Scotland and would have shaved about four centuries off of the time frame it actually took. So, And we wouldn't have Braveheart. So, That's true. We would not have Braveheart. You so. gotta count your blessings. Mel Gibson is thanking his lucky stars that this seven-year-old girl died. Got very seasick. So instead, Edward I was given the opportunity to intervene in the struggle to the throne in a different way, and he was officially allowed to appoint a ruler in Scotland, which he did happily, except it was basically a puppet ruler for him to rule through. Which is absolutely crazy that the Scottish lords would even do that, just because for the last 400 years, literally the, almost the entire existence of like a unified England, uh, they were at war. And they yeah, hated each other. Literally. But it's just that Edward was the most powerful king in the, like, in the land at this time now, yeah. so they didn't really have a choice, because at this point they would have taken unification. Obviously, they tried it, but... Mm -hmm wasn't meant to be. So Edward appointed a man named John Belial in 1292. And John Belial was said to be so weak as a ruler that nobles all began to gather around a different person, whose name was Robert Bruce, grandfather of Robert the Bruce, who I mentioned earlier is the man known as Braveheart. Yeah, that's got to hurt being like, all right, hey guys, can we all just like gather around? I have some things to say, being like John Belisle, and then all of them saying, no, we're actually going to go with Peace. this other guy. <laughs> yeah. So talks of rebellion were very steadily moving along the winds as because everyone knew that Edward was using John Belisle as a, pup, a puppet king, and Edward began imposing super heavy taxes on Scotland to basically fund his war with France. So not a lot of happy people in Scotland. And one of those people who was kind of sick of being underneath the thumb of Edward was John Belial. <laughs> so he made Here, that came full circle. So he made the move to renounce his fealty to Edward and ally with France. So allying with the enemy of the strongest king in your country. <laughs> he thought that was such a slick move too. Oh yeah. Like, 
I'm supposed to like join the actual campaign with Edward Longshakes to invade France, but instead gonna go just like party with them <laughs> you all think i'm weak i'll show you i'm not too weak yeah and then everyone else was like what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> we just signed something but uh just to add to your point of like the heavy taxation that edward was, edward the first was doing he actually and this is very prevalent in the braveheart movie uh the right of prima nocta which is the right of first night which is basically uh, if a Scottish person, a couple, lovely young kids were oh, to yeah. get married. I completely forgot about this. Yeah, if they were to get married, uh, the local, or excuse me, it was the right and privilege of English nobles to actually sleep with the woman on the first night of her marriage. Which is just absolutely wild. <laughs> yeah, and this was just... Throughout an entire country, that was just the rule. Getting cucked on your wedding night. You can understand my, uh, the Scottish nobles, or excuse me, just Scotland in general, pretty pissed. We're not happy, yeah. Yeah, because clearly this isn't, uh, you know, just not great. So, as I said, John Belial is doing his own thing, and the rest of Scotland, the nobles especially, are not very happy with this decision, and especially Robert Bruce is not happy with this decision. So, in his efforts to overthrow what is his lord, uh, from John Belial's perspective, he's now facing against fellow Scotsmen in his efforts because they're not helping him and are actively helping Edward I. Mm -hmm. So, in a bid to reestablish his hold in Scotland, Edward I led an army into a town known as Berwick. And for those of you that are not familiar with the geographical positioning of Berwick, it is on the river border between Scotland and England. So this is the first stop on his way into Scotland to put down this rebellion. And Berwick would not have a very good time with Edward stopping by. Not one bit. Was not for, you know, trade or commerce or just to check out the scenery. Yeah. So... For Sources vary on the number of men, but it was most likely around a, an army of 30,000 men Edward was leading, came to town, and Edward set it up so that he had ships coming up the river at the same time that he and his men on land would make it into the town on foot. And basically, the Scottish repelled most of the ships. They burned three or four of them and pushed them back, but... At the same time they were doing that, the land forces came in and had basically free reign over the city because this was not a very big army center for the Scottish people. Hmm. It was said that Edward and his men pretty much raised the entire town, went through killing, looting, raping, good old sacking a city, and nobody really fought back. So just to make a point, King Edward came through and killed anywhere from 10,000 to, I saw, up to 17,000 people in the city of Berwick. Not a good thing. And it was tr it's truly the first Scottish town that he came across, and he just let out all of the anger. Yeah, him and his men both. It was just said once his men saw that he was going for it, they all just pretty much gave in to the hysteria. Yeah, joined on in, which parallels throughout history. Every single culture in history has 
done the same exact thing. Uh, the only resistance that he encountered, there was some Flemings that were given possession of, I believe it was called the Red Brick Tower, mm. something similar to that. And they s- swore that they would defend it with their lives because they were given fealty to the, or were given this tower for free, basically. So the only resistance that showed up was those 30 people, some 30 people in that tower, and they couldn't get them out for a few days, and eventually they just burned the entire tower down and killed all of them inside. And that's one of the more notable stories about this entire thing. But yeah, it's the, the sources that say that blood ran for two days straight like a river, it probably isn't too far off. Edward Longshanks, he's up there in one of the what, what we usually call it, the dickheads of history, the Mount Rushmore <laughs> Some, of Something like, like that, yeah. <laughs> but all in all, very terrible human. Yeah. From expelling uh, the entire Jewish race from England uh, to a little, little pinch of genocide here, and then also trying to breed uh, the people out, the Scottish people out. Yeah. Ethnic, it's it's like very oh. like disguised ethnic cleansing. Yeah, we do not talk about how much ethnic cleansing this actually is. Oh, yeah. Come so, on, England. <laughs> however, John Bruce and the nobles still did not support John Belial and actually helped Edward defeat Belial at the Battle of Dunbar, which meant that, once again, there was no Scottish king. Edward appointed three barons to rule, and Edward himself took some of the major Scottish items of note and took them back to England with him as spoils of war. And now, with English officially priming for takeover of where Scotland is, this is where we see William Wallace officially come back into the story and become the hero that he's now known as. Yes, so... Our main man, again, not Mel Gibson. (laughs) Uh, Mel Gibson, also not a great man. But uh, there was already, you know, of course, we just went through the entire story of how Longshanks basically killed everyone that he ran into. Yeah, long story short, King died, Puppet King installed, Puppet King rebels, (laughs) Edward kills a bunch of people, and the Puppet King. Yeah, kills Puppet. (laughs) And here we are. (laughs) He kills Pinocchio. Yeah, right. <laughs> Geppetto <Yeah>. kills Pinocchio. <laughs> you know how they're making like a darker version of Winnie the Pooh? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Can you imagine that? But just this story with puppets and Pinocchio, Pinocchio. and Geppetto. <laughs> but uh, despite England kind of taking sovereignty of Scotland at this point, there was still plenty of resistance and resistance talks. And There were individual, more sporadic instances of resistance occurring in Scotland, uh, all the way up till May 2097, when William Wallace finally kind of enters the scene. And Wallace and a band of 30 men actually beat the British garrison at Lanark and burnt it to the ground. A little payback for, very little payback for Berwick. Uh, But they also killed the English sheriff, which was, again, just an appointed official. It wasn't the barons that uh, Jacob mentioned, but it was an elected official. So from the get-go, he took out a pretty important target and put a target in in its own right on his back. And there's a romantic story other than the the revenge for what happened at Berwick, which is that there was a a woman in this town that William Wallace fell in love with, and they secretly got married, but the sheriff loved her too, and then ran William out of town, killed the girl, and then 
William came back for revenge, but it's not probably not true. It's probably just a folk tale that's popped up after the fact. And again, straight out of Braveheart. Yeah, so that's that is somewhat true, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after the sacking of Lenark, uh, Wallace was joined by Sir William Douglas, whose nickname was the Hardy. Nothing to do with the Hardy Boys. He's not solving mysteries. Nope. <laughs> Uh, Wallace then marched on the town of Scone, where he drove out the English judiciary. And had some scones. And had some scones. Oh my goodness, I didn't even put that together. <laughs> the breakfast for that entire week after they burnt it to the ground, it just smelled it was, of ovens. It was just ovens. thin pancakes. Oof. Uh, he then moved on to the English garrisons between the rivers Forth and Tay, also effectively defeating the English there and raising the garrisons. The Scottish steward then, Robert the Bruce, uh, and others now decide that, hey, this guy's kind of going off. He's doing a good job. It's our time to raise an army. And you guys have to remember here that William Wallace was not a very powerful noble. He was just a guy, but he saw a portion of history where he could step in and kind of use his, as we said earlier, his charisma to rally people around him to a cause that now a bunch of people are more incensed for. And he just used that leadership ability of his to become someone. And that leadership transcended, like you mentioned, nobility, because after Robert the Bruce and other nobles gathered an army, they were forced to surrender at the Battle of Irvine. Uh, by two English gen- generals. But even when this happened, Wallace just, he literally just, like, he hid in a forest. Yeah, <laughs> they he, did that a lot. He was like Robin Hood <laughs> before Robin Hood. They, they definitely used that tactic more than once. Like, what are the forests like in England? Can you just not see in them? I mean, between it, the Robin Hood legend and just this huge force, because apparently it was a rather large force well, that Wallace had. So much longer before industrialization so we can't even like trees we can't even imagine (laughs) how much more forestation and stuff there was but yeah it's it's kind of crazy right there's another story where it's just like yeah they hit at the edge of the woods it's like okay i guess do they not light fires like (laughs) was Smokey the bear just there the entire time we did it we're rebelling think about it but uh yeah this whole time he's pushing into england he's being very (laughs) aggressive here uh, in fact, with that push to England, he actually laid siege to the town of Dundee. But he decided to abandon the siege when an English army was advancing towards the town of Stirling, led by the general John de Warren, Earl of Surrey. But uh, the English general uh, failed, of course, to bring Wallace to agreement terms outside of Stirling. So, for whatever reason... Wow, William Wallace, the legend, didn't uh, didn't want to surrender. Yeah, so he pretty much scurried on back up to the highlands of Scotland, which is not it's not a short trip. No. So he really had to get his men and get back to defend this area from this advancing English force. Mm-hmm. And then outside uh, the town of Stirling, on the bridge overlooking uh, the Forth River, on September eleventh, twelve ninety seven. So never forget. All right. The English <laughs> moment of silence. <laughs> Was that too much? Uh, the English started to cross this bridge again over the river Forth, and then Wallace and his troops, who were positioned northwest on some hills, held back their troops until about half of the entire English force had crossed. 
They then attacked with such sudden fury that almost all who had crossed were killed or driven into the river and drowned. Yeah, and at this time, too, William Wallace isn't commanding alone. He's with a man named Sir Andrew Moray. And so they're kind of co-leading at this point. But they were severely outnumbered here. But literally, the Stirling Bridge is the singular crossing point across the River Forth. So to get to the Highlands, the English had no choice but to cross this bridge. And the Scots just kind of relied on their knowledge of the landscape because this was a very marshy area. So they knew if they got them into a certain position that they wouldn't be able to charge because the horses would have trouble getting through the muck. Mm -hmm. And that was all they really needed. (laughs) Yeah, keep in mind, just talking army composition, the big strengths for England at the time was their mounted cavalry and their knights, and as well as their, of course, the longbows, which... England's just always known for. Yeah, and they just had a ton of money and a ton of men compared to these rebellions. And the money was all just taken. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But, again, since the Scottish attacked with such force, uh, William Wallace's men attacked with such force, uh, John de Warren had to retreat hastily across the bridge, but before they, like, fully crossed the bridge, he actually cut and destroyed the bridge Killing some of his own men, but he knew that if he didn't do that, the Scottish would have pretty much routed them yeah. entirely, and, uh, completely destroying that army. And sources, some sources say he cut it. Some sources say that just the sheer weight of everyone trying mm-hmm. to cross at once collapsed it. So, but either way, that bridge was going down. However, again, with the Scots just knowing their way around the land, they actually found a ford, like a natural ford, and continued to pursue nice. them. So they weren't done. They were getting all of that ass. And it's funny, too, because at this point, England is still fighting on the premise that people will wait until they get into formation, and then they'll fight face to face. But the Scots were like, no way. <laughs> Why would we wait when we have an advantage to just kill all of you right now? Right. So they, they were completely taken off guard by this. Guerrilla tactics just didn't really exist either at this point yeah the especially only, in this the only people that really used them were the vikings who were seen as savages right so it's well so were the scottish yes yeah, so well anyone that's not english pretty much at this point, time period is seen as savage so england has a lot of problems with a lot of people yeah. they also hate the french they are not they try to genocide the irish right up out of there too when during the potato famine england what's what, what's going on what are you guys? doing over there well, what is we got to become a world power you know yeah, it's Germanic blood. All right, listen, listen. We're going to kill everyone else, and then it'll be ours. <laughs> and just speaking for every single indigenous tribe, can you not? <laughs> <laughs> we're already here. We've had this land for... Now we're just going into <laughs> we always colonialism. Get, we always get there somehow. <laughs> oh, yeah, we, we find the way. Life uh, uh, finds a way. Or in this case, gets boxed by the British. Yeah. But literally, I have a little bit of a pot. Oh, no. <laughs> Prima Nocta. Uh, but John DeWarren was able to escape, but with a much smaller army, as you can imagine. And he made it all the way back to the town of York. Uh, and for the moment, Scotland was so close at this point to being free of occupation. Uh, in fact, a letter, uh, which was written by Moray and Wallace, uh, actually urged the border towns of Hamburg and Lübeck to resume trade with Scotland uh, due to the fact that, and this is a quote, we are recovered by war from the power of the English. So basically they were like, well, that's that. We can just resume and actually build an economy. 
Yeah, this was a huge turning point because, as Evan said earlier, Robert the Bruce and his men were defeated already. So Scotland desperately needed some sort of win. They needed a dub bad. Yeah, and th- this was very big for them because not only did they push them back, but they kept them out of the highlands, which was where a lot of the fortresses and stuff were. Mm-hmm. So if they would have in like penetrated through up to the highlands, this probably would have been the last place that they could have defended. And at that point, it would have been over for them. Exactly, yeah. But uh, Moray, who we mentioned before, was actually wounded at at this Battle of Stirling Bridge and then died soon afterward. And right. now it's just... Pour one out. Pour one out. But now it's just our man William Wallace ravaging Northumberland and Cumberland, and he actually burnt the town of Alnwick and then besieged the town of Carlisle. But he was always very nice and respectful to the different monks and church uh, institutions, and leaving I, them alone. And I think this is where there is some truth to him going and being taught by monks, because I think that he probably was. His parents probably sent him there to, to do some training with monks, but I think ultimately he just decided to do his own thing and left. So I think that's kind of why he has respect for, and just the fact that religion is so important at this time period to people. So, Oh yeah, like Scotland's a very christian country at this point of time in history and so if he just massacred monks all over the place they'd probably be like guy it would not be a good look i feel like he would he would lose a lot of support from the people following him if he did stuff like that oh absolutely uh but after these this initial campaign uh into england of course defending scotland at Stirling bridge uh once he returned to scotland in early december 1297 wallace was knighted However, and the funny thing is, this may just be lost to history, or maybe you just made it up. We don't know who knighted him. Because typically that's reserved for like the king or the actual pretty high up ruler. But yeah, they was like, nope. A lot of people a lot of people say that it was probably Robert the Bruce. Yeah. Just because like he was one of the higher ranking nobles in Scotland at the time and he was kind of on the councils and stuff mm. who are now kind of filling in to run Scotland. So right. <laughs> That does make the most sense that it was Robert the Bruce, but regardless, Wallace was also elected the guardian of the kingdom. So officially made the head of the army, key man, man in charge. Literally the guardian of Scotland. <laughs> kind of a big deal. Oh, you can't be wearing pants. Like, you have to be wearing Yeah. You have to actually, this is where You have Mel to Gibson's. fight with bagpipes. Oh, you have to fight. <laughs> <laughs> Every Scottish stereotype, insert here. Here. This is, oh my God. And then all of a sudden, his ha- he was actually, he actually had brown hair just as soon as he got this title, immediately red. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Pure red. And throwing logs like the Scottish Highland Games. Yeah. <laughs> After receiving this title of Guardian, Wallace immediately set himself to reorganizing the army and actually to regulate the affairs of the country and to really make Scotland feel like its own country at this point. And he seems to have acted wisely and vigorously. Wallace also gained the support uh, from various leaders almost immediately uh, in, in Scotland, particularly from Bishop Robert Wishart of Glasgow, who was essentially the main religious figure in Scotland, uh, and then several other leaders in Scotland, including Robert the Bruce. However, some nobles actually made deals to have English estates land in England and even in France as a result of those campaigns 
and some of their family members were being held hostage in England, uh, directly in London, right underneath Edward. And we're only meh to Wallace's leadership. Wait, they didn't trust Edward I to be very cor- courteous to his prisoners of war? Yeah, they, yeah. shocker. I, 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 no reason why that I can think of why he wouldn't be. Oh, wait. I'm just picturing Edward Longshanks, like, gripping them, like, in a cartoon from the heels and, like, shaking them for more money. Yeah, literally. Like, give me more coins. I need to fund wars. But as a result of a lot of nobles, a fair share of nobles, really not trusting William Wallace at this point, Wallace's position completely depended on his success on the battlefield. Yeah, because, as we mentioned, he's not a nobleman. Mm-mm. He just is a nobody that became somebody and is now a knight and guardian of Scotland. So for all these outsiders, they still are like, we don't know this guy. He's not of a, fam- a family of note. Why should we trust him? Right. It, this is truly just a random, a random person. And when you think about nobility, there's family ties and relationships built over truly hundreds of years. And this is just some guy that came out of the woodwork, and now he's just who we answer to. Yep. And then, of course, there's probably always just jealousy in there, too. Just being a noble that's not getting there. Like, hey, I was there, too. And especially for some of these nobles, too. I'm sure there was a lot of them that were swearing their fealty to Edward and were kind of getting paid on the side. So there's a a lot of that going on, too, where they think, well, now my position's going to be in danger. So if we let this guy, who's this new revolutionary in our country, somehow take back our independence, how am I going to get my pockets filled? It's like, yay, we're independent. Wait, my money. (laughs) Yay, we're independent. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just picturing someone really bummed at a 4th of July party. (laughs) Yeah. It's like waving a flag, like, hey, this is fun. Tight. Wish I had some money. Yeah, it'd be nice if I could pay for this party. <laughs> uh, then in early 1298, so roughly a year after returning to Scotland, after he, uh, after Wallace beat them at Stirling Bridge, uh, John de Warren returned and actually took back some English-held castles of Roxburgh and Berwick, but was instructed by Edward Longshanks himself to not advance any farther. And it was then, on July 3rd, that Edward himself crossed the River Tweed and moved towards Stirling with a strong force of heavy cavalry, a body of archers, and Irish and Welsh auxiliary infantry units. And this is one positive to Edward's life, is that he's always gone, so he never raised his son. So his son was completely incompetent by the time he took over, which is the only positive from his life. Daddy, daddy wasn't there to change me underwear. (laughs) To change me underwear. I love how this episode will go out the day after Father's Day, no less, and we're like, tight, great work being a absent father good job being a not at home dad (laughs) thank you for going for milk and cigarettes (laughs) in france (laughs) uh now being at the head of the army edward advanced north into different uh, scottish towns and scottish territory which would lead us to the battle of falkirk and now naturally wallace didn't want to directly engage the English until he had the absolute 
perfect spot to make his stand, as well as, of course, do those guerrilla tactics to the much larger English force. Uh, Wallace would constantly set up, quote-unquote, for battle, and then retreat before Edward's force could actually you know, get going and actually make a battle, and then he would then scorch everything that he like was retreating on. It's literal scorched earth Real, tactics. Yes, thank you. I, words are hard today, <laughs> as you can probably tell. But this effectively denied all food and supplies to the English. And this strategy was almost completely 100% successful because the shortages of provisions drove Edward's army to the brink of mutiny. And keep in mind, if you're thinking logistically, well, why didn't they bring enough food with them? Like, this is a huge army. This is also 1,200 England, so yeah. there's almost so, so much food to go around. Literally tens of thousands of men. Yes, and it almost, like, these tactics almost caused a complete mutiny, which never happens in British history at in this point, just because Edward Longshanks is, I mean, he's just ruthless. He is, and he's a, he is a very good military general, so... Like, not to say that he's just incompetent, too. He's very strong at what he does, so he's a very intimidating figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edward eventually quelled this mutiny and continued his advancement through central Scotland and was actually on the verge of abandoning the pursuit because he, he couldn't find Wallace and his men until he learned that Wallace's army was actually encamped not too far away in the area of Falkirk near the River Curran. Or Karen. Depends how, <laughs> depends how fancy you want to get with the pronunciation today. I love that Wallace was just playing Pop Goes the Weasel with, with a giant arm, like the strongest army in the country, and he's just literally playing Pop Goes the Weasel and then disappearing. He's like, what up, Eddie? And then bounce. <laughs> See ya. And also, here's some fire for your troops to eat. Uh, Edward then forced Wallace into battle uh, the very following, excuse me, the very next day after discovering where he was camped. Naturally, Wallace commanded a much smaller army of roughly 5,000 infantry and 1,000 mountain knights, uh, these mountain knights being primarily noblemen, uh, Scottish noblemen. But, however, they occupied a very strong position on a hillside south of the town of Falkirk, which had a seemingly impassable marsh in front of it. And as the English approached on July 22nd, Wallace divided the Scottish army into four large battalions, or circular battle formations. Each of these battalions were composed of foot soldiers positioned tightly together in rows and armed with long, iron-tipped pikes pointed outward towards the enemy. Naturally, you do this because England had a huge advantage when it came to heavy knights, and Wallace had the great idea of, well, or excuse me, heavy mountain knights, and Wallace had the great idea of, what if we made really long sticks and they couldn't get to us yeah. that were just really pointy? And his generals were like, are you serious? That's our battle plan. <laughs> but archers were then placed between uh, the different circul- circulars with their long sticks, and then a body of mounted men-at-arms under the command of John Common stood in reserve. And the hope here was, with drawing up this battle plan, was that the English cavalry would plunge directly into the marsh uh, for no serious precautions were actually taken to defend the Scottish flanks. And in 
Regardless, uh, Wallace's intent was to shatter the English charge, trusting wholly to his massed pikes. Of the battle to come, Wallace is said to have exhorted his men with the words, I have brought... Oh, I have to do a Scottish accent you for got that. To. Oh, this my literally gosh. have to. <clears throat> this has to be my performance of a lifetime. I have brought you to the ring. Now dance if you can. <laughs> eh. You're, you're the voiceover guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the English first line under Earl Marshal Roger Bigod and the Earls of Hereford and Lincoln tried to march up the marsh in vain and then rode around its western side. The second line, commanded by Antony Beck, the Bishop of Durham, quickly circumvented the marsh to the east and then halted to await the arrival of the third line, who was under the command of the king himself. The undisciplined barons in Beck's formation grew impatient, reportedly shouting, "'Tis not for thee, Bishop, to teach us war. Go say mass." <laughs> <laughs> I meant mass, but Go you say get mas? it. <laughs> I meant mass, but you get it. <laughs> no say mass. No. But these men, these impatient, uh, impatient barons, then just charged the nearest infantry square. And of course, with their long sticks, th- this infantry square repulsed them and gave them extremely heavy losses, killing a ton of them. The earls on the English left, uh, their flank excuse me, their flanking march completed, then charged Wallace's force of spearmen with the same result. So, they're actually having a rather great time. Uh, Wallace's men are having a rather great time repelling the English at this point in the battle. So far. Thus far. Now, like I mentioned, the Scottish cavalry was composed largely of nobles whose allegiance to Wallace was questionable, again, because their family members were either being shook down by Longshanks for every single penny they have, or just because they were getting paid by Longshanks himself. Uh, and many of them, excuse me, many of them, again, had these English estates in England, so just having land meant more money. And for the most part, they actually completely abandoned the battle. So keep in mind... Not to, very noble of them. Oh, so unnoble. But keep in mind, they were having... They, the English charges were completely being shattered by these long pikes. So if you put in perspective, if these cavalrymen would have charged, they could have probably easily routed the English at this point. Edward eventually caught up and joined the battle and linked up with the bishop in the English center and then ordered the cavalry to stand fast. This is a direct result of his experience fighting against mass pikemen in the Welsh Wars. Uh, Edward then decided to bring up the deadly English archer with the longbows. These guys kind of slap. Yeah, they, like, Robin Hood is a great series for a reason, and inc- each one was an incredible marksman. Yeah. It just was their bread and butter. For whatever reason, it's the trees, apparently, that are throughout England that make such good bows, which make those puppies fly. And everyone else is like, that's not fair. Wait a minute. We want cool trees. Yeah. <laughs> a deadly rain of arrows soon caused gaps to appear in the close ranks of these different pike holders in the Scottish line. And this is from the chronicler Walter of Gooseborough, uh, reports that the English infantrymen stood at a distance and 
showered the immobile, immobile Scottish battalions with stones. So the people that, the infantrymen that were currently fighting, uh, backed up a little bit, picked up some rocks, and decided to throw them right at the Scottish pikes. I mean, it's literally a sitting duck for you to just start pummeling with whatever you can find. So Yeah, because they truly can't charge. They can't do a counter charge because they have such a good position. And if they charge, then they're just going to get absolutely destroyed by the cavalry. Uh, after sufficient preparation, Edward then renewed the cavalry assault. The weakened and disorganized Scottish ranks of course, gave way, and Scots fled into a nearby forest. About a third of Wallace's army had perished, and it was the first victory of the longbow in a major battle. Wallace then retired northward with the rest of his surviving army, burning Stirling and Perth as he went. Edward followed and restored the castle and town at Stirling, but was unable to maintain his forces in Scotland again because Wallace just burnt everything to the ground. He then returned south, reaching Carlisle on September 8, 1298. Although Edward failed to subdue the rest of Scotland before concluding this campaign, Wallace's military reputation was ruined. He pro- Wallace promptly resigned his guardianship in December of the same year and was succeeded by Robert the Bruce. Wallace would later engage in guerrilla activities against England, so he still, you know, was wildin'. And he was relentlessly pursued by English forces, who finally captured him near Glasgow in 1305. Yeah, they don't know exactly what he was doing, but it is believed that he was still kind of fighting where he could and then just hiding. (laughs) Because he is a very wanted outlaw for being the only person to really put up a fight against Edward at this point. And there are some reports that Wallace actually did flee to France in 1299. And did return eventually uh, in the autumn of ni- or 1299, but really nothing's known about his activities for four years. And regardless, the rebellion he had led still kept on going until 1304, uh, at which point, you know, most Scottish nobles then did just submit to Edward. However, it is then on August 5th, 1305 that William Wallace was arrested, like we mentioned, near Glasgow by Sir John Menteth, and according to two early chroniclers, by treachery. Sold out. Which, I mean, the reward on William Wallace was absolutely insane, because, like you mentioned, Wallace was the one leader to whom Edward would never offer any terms of like in- either engagement or surrender, and whom he, whom Edward most persistently tried to capture. Well, so. I mean, when they met at the Battle of Sterling, William Wallace literally, here I have, I have the quote, he said, Go back and tell your people that we have not come for the benefit of peace, but are ready to fight, to avenge ourselves and our, to free our kingdom. So he was, he was not ready to stand down in any, any way, shape, or form. Oh, no. And that didn't stop just after that battle. That, yeah. was, that was a lifelong thing. Mm-hmm. Wallace was then taken to Dumbarton Castle and then directly to London, having possibly been brought before King Edward along the way and most likely tortured and not treated well oh, yeah. the entire way. And his, his death is not going to be a very painless one. <laughs> oh my gosh, his death is the worst. So on August 23rd, 1305, 
Walsh was conveyed to Westminster Hall, where he was indicted and condemned to death. There was no trial, Wild, uh, because well, he was declared a traitor to the king. There was kind of a mock trial, I guess. I mean, they basically just laid out his charges, and then he said no, and they're like, yeah, you're going to die. Yeah, Walsh, of course, denied all these charges because he has a point. He had never sworn allegiance to England. Yeah, so and neither does his family. His family never wrote their names in the book of swearing their fealty to the English either. So. Right. Well, a thousand years later, we can finally clear this man's name. Yeah, he was right. not a traitor. That same day after he was convicted, he was hung, disemboweled, and then finally beheaded, and body, his body was quartered. Yeah, so he is. Before he was even hung, though they they stripped him naked, dragged him by the heels through the streets of London, and then they hang they hanged him just before he died, and then put him on a bench, cut him open, spilled out his intestines, and then cut him in, his cut his head off and cut his arms and legs off. It's like one of the most brutal ways of execution that the British had, or the English at this point, I guess. For real, England like. This is a safe place. What's going on, guys? Like, why are you Dude, always on some England, shit? England and France went very execution crazy for a long time. <laughs> do you think that has anything to do just with the constant pressure, like one invading the other? Yeah. It's, like, that just it, makes people bonkers? I mean, it's just a way, it's a deterrent in their eyes. Like, that's how mm. they wanted to deter people from committing crimes and especially <laughs> from speaking out against, like, the king and everything because... I mean, you, if you told a lie about a nobleman or something, you could have your tongue nailed to a wooden stake. And it's just, none of it was fun. <laughs> but, I mean, they had to come up with the most brutal things that they could to show people that this is what happens. They couldn't just be like, how about nah, or here's like a couple years of jail time. <laughs> nope, <laughs> gotta make a public, public uh, example of them. Right, right. Uh, Wallace's head, after he was quartered, was then set on the London Bridge, and his limbs were exposed at four different cities, including Newcastle, Berwick, Stirling, and Perth. And the Berwick and Stirling ones just have to be some of the most insulting ones. Yeah, especially Berwick, because it's just a heap of rubble at this point. And the people that... Where did it even hang it? Yeah, and the (laughs) the people that did survive the assault are probably just under subjugation now so they're just forced to stare at this guy's leg right and like his toe just fell off and just hit you on the forehead or something yeah it's just brutal but alas in 1306 robert the bruce would raise raised a rebellion that would eventually win the independence for scotland so i know you're all probably very sad for our man, William Wallace. However, he did not die in vain. Robert the Bruce would then carry on that mantle and then raise the, like I mentioned, raise the rebellion and just kept on winning victory after victory until he finally won and Scotland was fully independent. Yeah, so basically their strategy after William Wallace had lost at Falkirk was just to wait until Edward I dies because he was getting pretty old and they knew that Edward II was not a good military commander. So they just said, we'll wait it out for now, weather the storm. And then when he finally did die, 
Robert the Bruce kind of started secret alliances and formed his own little community and eventually just got named king of a king of Scotland and then that's how the war pretty much ended because Edward II was a military failure. He literally just played the waiting game. Yeah, it, that's that's absolutely incredible. And I mean that's essentially how Edward had this foothold in the first place is because Alexander III died. So it kind of came back full circle when he died, and then Scotland was like, okay, now we're good. Just hundreds of years of subjugation, just kind of over. Yeah. That's absolutely, you know what, good for Scotland. Great for Scotland. Absolutely love to see that for Scotland. Love to see it. <laughs> yeah, just to wrap up, Wallace was unmarried, and it's unknown if he did father any children. There's actually no portrait of him and no contemporary description of his actual appearance. Uh, many of the stories surrounding Wallace have been traced to a late 15th century romance ascribed to Harry the Minstrel or Blind Harry. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow wrote a bunch of stories. <laughs> With vivid details. Uh, the most popular tales are not supported by any, documenter, any documented evidence, but they show Wallace's firm hold on the imagination of the Scottish people. Yeah, pretty much everyone who said anything about his appearance said he was just big. They didn't say anything else other than he's big guy. That boy tall. He's a big dude. Yeah. So that's why all the statues are just big guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and like you mentioned, the statue, that was actually built in 1861 or 1869 between those years. Uh, so a huge statue of William Wallace stands atop the rock of Abbey Craig near Sterling. Nice. And like we've mentioned multiple times, his legacy stays very prevalent because, you know, Braveheart. Mel Gibson. <laughs> Mel Gibson made, well, made a banger movie. He did. Um, but that concludes the real life story of William Wallace. It's crazy that that was all in the script of Braveheart that we just read. Yes, including my stutters and my yeah, none mispronunciation. Of, none of that was improv. <laughs> and we actually changed the accents. <laughs> I was, I was going to read like the outro for it as like the end here, but it's not historically accurate. So, <laughs> If we're anything, we like to try to be historically yeah, accurate so on the show. I will leave it there. But yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this, the story of another... United Kingdom hero before it was the United Kingdom. Should probably do an American hero sometimes, too, nah. considering it's 4th of July in a couple weeks. Yeah, we'll think about it. Eh, you've heard their stories we'll, already. We'll consider it. <laughs> also, who are we to pick from? We're going to talk about like this. Andrew Jackson? I don't know. We're going to talk not. about this little-known guy known as Abe Lincoln. You ever heard of him? Ever heard of him? You know the story of a little old Paul Revere? Spoiler alert, he, he loses his head a little bit. That was that was that was nice. <laughs> Evan, where can these people find us on social media? They can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco. Then myself at Whatevskis. <laughs> I'm trying to do this without looking for the first time ever. Off the cuff. And then you can find us on Instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast. Then finally, you can find us on TikTok. At Gems of History Pod. See, it's fun for me because I get to watch you struggle if you don't remember them because I have to type them out every time, so I just have them ingrained in my mind. <laughs> if I could copy and paste like phrases to speak, 
that looking oh, at you looking at you google work on that 100 percent. oh my gosh if i get auto reply to just random conversations i'm having that'd be amazing but other than those socials go check us out on facebook in the facebook group the the agora gems of history discussion page and if you're a member in the group do us all a favor and post your favorite gif from the movie braveheart yes historically accurate or not it's okay yeah. for the gifts we just flood that page with Braveheart gifts or memes. If you have a meme, send them on over. But that's all we got for you guys this week. So we will talk to you guys later. Everyone have a great week. Goodbye. <laughs>